Morning, Harlan. How are you doing today? Hey, do we have any Team World Vision runners in here right now? Some of you, you're out there. Yeah, okay, I hear you. And uh, some of you maybe are going to be in the next service. I love that. I am not a runner. I don't do Saturdays at 6.30, especially if there's running involved. But kudos to you guys. Uh, I love what you're accomplishing. I love the community you're forming. Speaking of community, Britton mentioned this is one of the primary ways our communities that we have here at Arden, one of the primary ways we go about our whole heartbeat as a church, about making space to build relationships, because in those relationships, we get to make Jesus first. Team World Vision is one of those communities. We have all sorts of other ones, meaning throughout the weeks, throughout the month, different times and places all around, something maybe a little bit different, but all of them building relationships to make Jesus first. We have actually three, if you've been looking for an opportunity to jump into one of these communities, you can find out about all of them on our website, but we have three new ones that are launching this month that I want to celebrate. Uh, one of them is called Leadership Refresh. If you you are a leader, it could be a leader of a company, a leader of a team, a leader of a t-ball team, a leader of a family, a leader in your community. Um, this is an opportunity for you once a month to come and be refreshed, to experience world-class teaching from some of the best leaders and to pull up a chair with other people to talk about how can you grow as a leader in your specific space and then how can you use your leadership for the most, um, the most good in this world and how can you put Jesus at the center of your leadership. That's starting off next Saturday morning, so click on the page to find out about Leadership Refresh, another community that's kicking off that I want you to know about is our young couples community. So if you are nearing marriage or you're in the first you know, few years of marriage, next Sunday between service, services, our young couples community is kicking off with a four-week course called Marriage University to give you some of the tools or some of the tweaks to help you have the most life-giving and healthy marriage. So uh, that's happening next Sunday. And then also, men, you may know that we have fire pits that happen all across uh, the city uh, throughout the month. And we have a brand new fire pit starting up for men who are veterans. If you want to come and get to meet some other men who share similar uh, that similar part of your story or your journey, uh, find out about that on the website. All sorts of opportunities to get to connect with other people. So, and now as we're jumping in to the message for today, uh, in his classic best-selling work, The Knowledge of the Holy, author A.W. Tozer uh, writes, the child, the philosopher, and the religionist all have one question, and I would add the Heartlander too. We all have the same question. What is that question? It's what is God like? This is what's within all of us is to know the answer to this question. It's the question that Tozer sets out in his book to answer. And he actually answers this question almost as soon as he asks it. Right there on the first pages, he says, what is God like? He is incomprehensible. Which begs the question, if God is incomprehensible, why write a book on it? If God is incomprehensible, why have a series on it like we are here at Heartland? And there's a couple of reasons. One is because just because God is incomprehensible doesn't mean that he's unknowable. Just because a mountain is so big that you can't summit it doesn't mean that it's not worth exploring. Here's the other reason. It's because this question, what is God like, isn't simply a question, Tozer tells us. It's a yearning. And the thing about yearnings is they don't just go away. We have to lean into, we have to explore the yearnings that we have in our life and in our soul. And so Tozer writes this about this yearning. The yearning to know what cannot be known, to comprehend the incomprehensible, 
To touch and taste the unapproachable arises from the image of God in each of us. The soul senses its origin and longs to return to its source. That if you have ever asked, what is God like? That very question stems, it comes out of the very image of God in you. It comes from the fact that you have been created by a God that has placed that yearning inside of you. And so this is what we're doing during this series, Is God? As we are exploring that yearning within all of us to know, what is God like? The Bible tells us all sorts of things about God. But this series is really giving us permission. I hope that actually it's not just giving you permission, that for some of you, you're feeling some permission to even be skeptical. Because the Bible tells us lots of things about God, but sometimes our experience of life in this world don't seem to line up with the things that the Bible tells us about God. So, so far in this series, we've, we've explored, is God real? Is God listening? Is God just? Is God working? And this week, I want to ask another important question that I believe all of us have asked, are asking, or will ask in our life, and it's this, is God powerful? See, for God to be God, he has to be powerful. If there's no power, then he's not God. This is a question that we all long to know, and the Bible tells us that he is. But our question is not simply, is God powerful? The question that you and I ask is, how powerful is he? Because there are things in our life, there are things in this world that we want to know, is God more powerful than that? And so this is a question that shows up all over the Bible. What I've loved about this series is that it reminds us the Bible is not simply a book of answers. The Bible asks these questions that we're asking too. And so this question, is God powerful, shows up all over the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, especially if we go back to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, which is what I want us to look at today. Now, I know you're probably familiar with the story of the Exodus. You've seen one of the movies. Maybe you saw the Charleston Heston one, right? Maybe you saw the animated one, the Disney one, that was decent. Maybe you saw the Ridley Scott Christian Bale one. And if so, we need to correct some things. <laughs> but either way, you maybe have some familiarity with the story of the Exodus. I want to get us all on the same page. And I want to do it by rewinding the tape a couple of centuries before the Exodus happened. So here it is. God's people in the Old Testament began as just two people, Abraham and Sarah. God shows up and he says to them, hey there, I'm God, I'm the God, the only God, but the world doesn't know that, so here, here's what I'd love to do. I'm going to give you a family. I'm going to give you kids, and your kids will have kids, and this family will grow to become an entire nation of people, as many as the stars in the sky, and here's my promise. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And I will promise to love you and to protect you. I will promise to be in relationship with you so that all of the world can know who I am. And sure enough, Abraham and Sarah have a child, Isaac. Isaac has a child named Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to Israel, which literally means one who wrestles with God. And this family grows to become the Israelites living in the land of Canaan until a famine forces them over to Egypt and there they multiply until Pharaoh decides that this, this family now nation will become the perfect workforce to build his pyramids. So now for about 400 years, this people that God promised to love and to protect have been enslaved away from their home. This is where we're picking up the story today. In Exodus 2.23, it tells us that years passed and the king of Egypt died. But the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. And they cried out for help. And their cry 
rose up to God. This, this word groan over here, this has the connotation of pain. And it's not simply that they're groaning under the pain of their work, of their labor, of their slavery. They're groaning under the pain of feeling abandoned. They're asking, where was their God? Where was his promise? Where was his power? And the only answer to this question was that the power of Pharaoh was too much for the power of God. Verse 24. So God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and he knew that it was time to act. Just pay attention to the verbs in these verses that God heard. God remembered. God looked and God acted. Now, when we plan out these series, we have no way of knowing what's going to be happening in the world when we preach these sermons. And as we're reading this verse, it reminds me, it reminds, should be reminding all of us that there is groaning happening in the world today, right? And just to be clear, this is not a sermon about what's happening in Israel right now. This is not a sermon about the headlines that we are reading, but we know that there is groaning happening on the other side of the world. And when the world groans, what we have to remember is that God hears. When the world groans under the pains of evil, God remembers, God listens, and God acts. And the question that you may be wondering, that all of us are wondering, church, is that as the people of God, what is our call? What is our call when the world is groaning? And our call is to join the groans of this world. It's to come alongside them, to give voice to them, and I believe to pray on their behalf. And this is what I want us to do. And as I do this, as I pray for this situation in our world, which I believe God wants us to do, we're called to do, what I don't want to do is take us off the table. I do want to acknowledge it. I want to pray for God's activity in it. But God cares just as much about the groaning that's happening in your corner of the world as he does on the other corner of the world. But for just a moment, let's go before God and let's ask for his power to be at work. And so, Father, we come to you reminded that you are a God who sees who listens, who remembers, and who acts. And every day when we wake up and we see the headlines, Lord, they're headlines of tragedy. They're headlines of loss. They're headlines of unfathomable pain and suffering. And so we pray, Lord, we pray for every person, we pray for every family who is experiencing the pain of evil, the suffering of evil in the world today, Lord God. We pray for those who are experiencing this in Israel. We pray for those who are experiencing this in the Gaza Strip, in the West Bank, all across Palestine, God, that you hear the, hear the groans of anyone who is suffering, especially when they are suffering against the evil of this world. And Lord, we pray that you would act. We pray that you would comfort. We pray that you would empower. And Lord, we pray for all of the leaders of these situations who are making decisions that you would guide them with your wisdom, that you would allow them to trust in you and in your power, God. And that as we pray this, God, that we would remember that you hear our groans as well. We join their groans, but there are things that are going on in our life. There are things going on. There are things that will continue to happen in all corners of the world. There's groaning happening in all corners of the world and we join their groans as your people 
that you, God, that you would be our God and you would be theirs. And church, can we say this together, amen? Amen. amen. So, back to Exodus. The Israelites of the Old Testament, they groan and God acts. Enter Moses. So Moses was a Hebrew child who didn't know that he was Hebrew. By the time Moses is raised in Pharaoh's home and he discovers his identity, he kills a man and he escapes Egypt. Moses starts a new life until decades later when God shows up in a burning bush, sends Moses back to Egypt to try to convince Pharaoh to release the Hebrew people, which Pharaoh won't do. So God uses his power to send a whole bunch of plagues that finally cause Pharaoh to relent and outgo the Israelites right up until the time that they get to the Red Sea blocking their escape and Pharaoh and his army are chasing them on one side and they have the Red Sea on the other. And watch God's power at work. And this is a long section of the Exodus, but I want to read this for us because I want us to see so many aspects of this story and so many aspects of God's power. So read with me. As Pharaoh approached them, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Do you hear their questions about the power of God and how much they had given up on that power? And Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. And so the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. You jump over to nice 14, not verse 19. Then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and he went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other. So neither went, went near the other all night long. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And so the Egyptians pursued them and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and he threw them into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses, he stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back into its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the sword swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites, they went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. There's something that this story teaches us about God's power. There is some relevance of this story for you and for I, for us today. And maybe you're not asking God to use his power to part the waters. But there's probably something in your life that you want him to move out of the way. 
Maybe you aren't asking God to use his power to save you from some self-serving, hard-hearted, slave-driving ruler who thinks that they're God. Or maybe that's a perfect description for someone in your life, right? See, there are things in your life that you want to know, is God more powerful than that? And here's the big thing that I want us to get from this story today is that God is stronger than our situations and he's stronger than so much more. God is stronger than your situations and he is stronger than so much more because there's a situation in your life that you want to know is God stronger than that? Is God stronger than the cancer? Is God stronger than the joblessness? Is God stronger than the estrangement with your child? Is God stronger than the marriage that feels hopeless? Is God stronger than the depression? And what I think God wants us to know is that, yes, he is. Throughout the Old Testament, this is the story that the Israelites would look back on to remind them that there was no situation that would come their way that was stronger than God. There was no enemy and no obstacle more powerful than him. And sometimes in those situations, God would step in and save them and he would do it the way that they hoped that he would. And sometimes, sometimes he wouldn't. And maybe you have some situations in your life where where God moves something out of the way, the, the way that you wanted him to. But you also have some situations in your life where he didn't. And it's in those moments that we ask that question, God, are you really powerful? See, this story doesn't simply teach us that God is stronger than our situations. It teaches us that God is stronger than so much more. And that's what I want to help us see today. Like what? God is stronger than our situations. And what else? Well, first... God is stronger than our skepticism. You see, for four centuries, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, and yet there was this rumor floating around that they were a people chosen and adopted by the all-powerful God to be loved and to be protected by him. And if somewhere along the way, the Israelites started to be skeptical of God's power, who could blame them? It's the age-old question, how could God, how can God be loving and be powerful. In fact, there was a guy named Luther who asked this same question. Now, not Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer of the church, Lex Luther. <laughs> the supervillain arch nemesis billionaire of, uh, or arch nemesis of, of uh, Superman. And so in the 2016 movie, Batman versus Superman, which earned a whopping 29% on Rotten Tomatoes, Luther said to Superman, he says, I figured it out way back. If God is all powerful, he cannot be all good. And if he's all good, then he cannot be all powerful. And neither can you be. So they need to see the fraud that you are. This was Lex Luther, Luther's conclusion to the dilemma of God's love versus God's power. Because when we talk about God's power, there's a word that theologians use called omnipotent, omnipotent, that Omni meaning all, potent meaning powerful or influential, that that we describe God as being all powerful. And yet when we see the pain and the evil and the suffering in this world, 
We have a hard time believing it. So we think to ourselves, like Lex Luthor, God can either be powerful or loving, but he can't be both. Because a God who is loving, but he's not powerful, is a God who is no good to us, right? And a God who, right? Yeah, thank you. A God, a God who is powerful, but he's not loving, is a God we should run away from. And so Lex Luthor solves this dilemma by saying you can only be one or the other. Otherwise, you are a fraud. But this misunderstands both the love and the power of God. Here's where Luther gets it, I believe, wrong. You see, God cannot be loving without giving people free will. The most unloving thing for God to do could be to remove, to remove the ability to choose between good and evil, right? So because he is a loving God, he gives us the ability to choose between these two things. So to use his power to prevent evil would be a contradiction of his love. You follow me? And for God to use his power to just snap his fingers and erase evil from the world, well, that would be to erase us. Because the evil of this world has found its way into us. And so the coexistence of love and power is what the Exodus taught the Israelites. It's why centuries later, King David would write in Psalm 62, he said, one thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Basically saying, there is one principle within which two others are wrapped and we cannot pull them apart. He says, power belongs to you, God, and with you is unfailing love. David, the king of Israel, who knew well the story of the Exodus, says this is what we learned. Power belongs to you and with you is unfailing love. And this word and, this is such a critical component of our view of God. Because God isn't simply one thing, right? This is something that this series has been reminding me. I hope it's something that, 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 I hope it's something that you're being reminded of or being taught as well. Is that God is not a one-dimensional God. You see, God is powerful and he is loving. God is knowable and he is incomprehensible. God is just and he is merciful. God is kind and he is holy. And so my question for you is, do you have an and view of God? Do you let God be all that he is? Or do you tend to favor one of his attributes over the others? You see, God is like this diamond with each side revealing a different aspect of who he is. But as Tozer says, none of these things are ever in conflict with the others. Each attribute flows from the other. And so when we find ourselves trying to reconcile some attributes of God that feel at odds with one another, it may make you really skeptical. It will. It will make you skeptical. You may wonder, like Luther did, if God is a fraud, or maybe you've concluded that he is. Or you may just think, God, you're being really confusing. I think that skepticism, that natural skepticism that we all will have is actually an invitation from God into that yearning that is within us to realize that God is so much bigger than we naturally let him be. And see, God is stronger than our skepticism, but that's not the only thing. God is also stronger than our impatience. 
This is what the Exodus teaches us. See, for four centuries, we love the end of the story. For 400 years, these Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. For 400 years, they experienced the pain of suffering and evil. That's 400 years of the Israelites yearning to know if God's power would ever show up. One year that it seemed like it did. 399 that it seemed like it didn't. But let's talk about what power is. So when I was in high school, um, I had a weightlifting coach. I worked out. Uh, And the weightlifting coach, he would always yell at us. He would tell us strength times speed equals power. That strength times speed, strength, strength is the ability to do something, the ability to make something happen, to move something, right? Times speed, which is, you know, the, the time in which it takes that thing to move. When we multiply those things together, that's what gives us power. And I don't know if this is a scientific definition. Some of you are a lot smarter. There's all sorts of definitions of power and physics and electricity and all of this. But I think this is what we tend to kind of accept, that the ability to do something and the shortness of the time that it takes to do it equal the amount of power that we have. But this, I, think this is, I think this is misguided. Because we, we measure power this way, and this is also how we measure God too. But we don't just want God to make something happen. We want him to do it quickly. The problem is this assumes that we know both what God wants to do and that we know the time in which he wants to do it. And so if we fast forward to the New Testament, there was another author by the name of Peter. Now, Peter was an Israelite that became a follower of Jesus. And he's writing to a bunch of Christians who were suffering persecution and waiting impatiently for God to do something. And Peter leans on his Jewish perspective and he writes to these followers of Jesus. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. These followers of Christ are wondering, why hasn't Jesus done what he said he was gonna do? Why is it taking him so long? And Peter lays out this principle. He says, you gotta remember, we have to remember, God is not slow in keeping his promises. God is not slow in going about his power, but he's not in a hurry either. And his patience actually means that we get to experience more of his love, right? It's why Paul, another Israelite turned follower of Jesus, uh, prayed in Ephesians. We heard this verse during our time of, of music and singing. He prayed, may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. So now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work, where? Within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Where does God focus his power? Within you. Where does God want to do more than all you think, ask, or imagine? Within you. You see, he doesn't focus his power on the situation around us all the time, but he does focus his power on the situation within us. That means he gives you power to be patient. It means he gives us power to hold on. Gives us power to hope. He gives us power to grieve. He gives us power to pray. He gives us power to believe that he is with us. Not only that he is with us, but he is within us. 
He's within you. This is the power of God at work, which means that there will be a day that comes, that comes when God returns and his power is on full display and every situation in our lives and in this world will be made right. But he doesn't hasten the day due to our own impatience. Instead, he gives us the power to wait for it. God is power, powerful, more powerful. God is stronger than our skepticism. He's also more powerful than our impatience. But here's the last thing that I want to see that we have to acknowledge. Is that God is stronger than our sufferings. God is stronger than your sufferings and mine. If we follow the story of the Israelites through the rest of the Old Testament, there would be more armies that were chasing them. There would be more slavery. There would be more suffering. And in those times, this story of the Exodus would be one that the Israelites would pass down to their children's children so that those children and their children would know just how powerful their God was. And sometimes God would save them from their suffering. And sometimes he saves us from ours too. See, God is stronger than all of our situations and he's stronger than so much more. You see, for God, when he looked upon his people in the Old Testament, he knew that there was a deeper suffering that he longed to overpower, and it was the suffering of sin. And that's a word that we toss around a lot in the church, and maybe you have some baggage with it, but what sin essentially is, is any time that we choose our ways over God, our ways over God's, despite who he is and despite all he's done, unaware of the suffering that will result from it in our life. And so God saw this situation of sin and the rest of the Old Testament is filled with the groans of his people longing for him to rescue them from the slavery of their sin and suffering. And this was the situation that God had always planned to rescue them from. And so God, he heard the cries of his people. He heard the cries of this world he saw their need, he remembered his promise, and he decided to act. You see, even though God wouldn't use his power to keep us from choosing evil, he would, he does, he did use his power to save us from the slavery of evil in this world and in our life. And so God writes the story of a new exodus. He sent a new Moses and Jesus, a new savior to lead not just his people in the Old Testament, but this whole world, all who would follow him, known now as the church, from the slavery of sin and suffering into the promised land of his love. See, the exodus story, it's your story. It's our story. It's the story of God parting the seas and saving you and I from the evil that is behind us. And it's possible, it's only possible because of the love and the power of God. And so there's a moment near the end of Jesus's life that is a lot like the Israelites trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. See, but for Jesus, the army that chased him was the religious leaders of his day coming to arrest him. And the Red Sea that stood on the other side of him blocking his escape was a cross of suffering where his blood would spill. And in that moment, just like in the moment with the Israelites, when they stood between these two things, 
And they cried out to God. Jesus cried out to God too. He knelt in a garden and he prayed. He said, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering from me. Yet what I want, I want your will to be done and not mine. Jesus prayed, God, you are the all-powerful God. So why does it have to be this way? If you are the all-powerful God, why am I here with these two options beside me with no escape? If you are the all-powerful God, why wouldn't you save me from this suffering? And what does God do next? It says an angel of the Lord, an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. It's this glimpse into this humanity of Christ that Jesus was both human and he was God. That even the Son of God found himself in need of God's power. And how did the angel strengthen him? We don't really know. But I think, I think it was somehow the assurance that God is stronger than all of our situations and he's stronger than so much more. That in that moment, Jesus was reminded of the plan that had been set forth from the beginning of time. That God was so much stronger than the situation of the cross. And he was stronger than so much more. He was stronger than the army that was chasing him. And he was stronger than what lied ahead of him. You see, God didn't use his power to save Jesus from his situation. And this confused the world. Pilate looked at Jesus on trial and he said, what kind of king are you? Others would look at Jesus on the cross and say, what a weak savior you are. But the power of God would never make sense to the powers of this world. And it was this power that led Jesus to the cross. It was this power that held him there. And it was this power that would be the one that would raise Jesus from the grave. And it is this power that he makes available to you and to me today. That's what God wants us to know in the story of the Exodus. It's what God wants us to know in the story of Jesus. So the band's gonna lead us in a song, just remembering how strong God is. But the question I wanna ask you as we, before we go into this song is, what is it in your life? What is the specific thing in your life that you need God to show you, that you need to know that he is stronger than? Maybe there's a situation and you can pray, God, would you assure me? Would you show me? Would you remind me or help me trust that you are stronger than this because I'm having a really hard time? Maybe there is a skepticism in your life. Maybe you have concluded if there is a God, he is a powerful God or he is a loving God, but he certainly isn't both. Maybe you're convinced that the army behind you or whatever's in front of you is too much for the power of God. Maybe there is something that you are still reeling from in your past that you need to come back to God and say, can we talk about that? Maybe there's suffering. And like Jesus suffered and, and bled drops of blood to the ground, an angel of the Lord came up beside him and said, there is suffering, but there is purpose to this suffering. There is suffering, but there is my presence in the suffering. And you need to experience God's strength in that now and in the weeks to come. So this is the time. 
It's a time to sing. It's a time to worship. What's interesting is if we go on into Exodus 15, you know what the Israelites did? They sang. They get to the other side and they sing. They sing about the power of God. Moses and Miriam, they record this song. And the reason that this song is recorded in scripture is because when God shows up in power, the only response for his people is to worship him. And that's what I want us to have an opportunity today to do. Maybe for you, worship is a celebration right now of all God that God has done. Maybe for you, worship is leaning into that yearning, that desperate yearning that you have to know that God is a powerful God. And so, Father, I pray for every single one of us here. I pray for the groans that are in our hearts. I pray for the longing that we have to know just how powerful you are. Lord, we look upon the story of the Exodus and it can feel like a story that is so unrelatable because it is so magnificent, but I believe it's a story that you long to do in our lives. And Lord, I know that it is a story that you have done through the story of the cross. And so it is in that that we sing and that we trust that you are stronger than all our situations and you are stronger than so much more. Amen.